All right, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, one of Paul's very first epistles, perhaps the very first, he wrote to the Galatian churches. Galatia was a province of the Roman Empire in the first century and beyond, and there were several churches um, in that area of modern Turkey or Asia Minor today. And the churches had come together, and they had gone astray. And, uh, you know, when, when you get to uh, the book of Revelation, he talks about the seven churches. They are churches uh, primarily from that same area, and some of those churches might have been addressed as well in this letter, which would have been a, an encyclical, something that would have gone around to the different churches. And they probably, we probably would have read it publicly in their church service, and though that's part of our church service today as we read publicly among the people of God, the things that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, had to say to the churches. And so I'm going to ask you to open to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Chapter 3. I'm going to begin in uh, chapter 3, verse 23, and read on down to chapter 4, verse 11 for you this morning to give some context um, to the major theme of this passage. And so verse 23 of chapter 3 of Galatians, and so Paul writes, Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, We're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. If a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, 
We ask that you open anew to our hearts this morning the deep truths of this, your holy word, preserved for us down through the ages by apostles and prophets and reformers and translators. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you that we have your written word in our hand. And I pray it would edify the saints this morning, O oh Lord. Amen. And so Paul gives this message. You've got to remember something about epistles. For the most part, an epistle is a rebuke. And for the most part, an epistle doesn't get written until there's some mistakes of doctrine in the church and the apostle comes in to correct those. And so he does the same here. But of course, at this Christmas time of the year, we focus on subjects that have to do with the nativity of Christ, as we had in the last two uh, Sundays, coming up to this Sunday. Of course, yesterday is the traditional celebration of the birth of Christ. I know that all Christian people by now should know he was not actually born on that day, nor perhaps even in that season. But this has been a season that men have adopted in tradition to celebrate that birth, and so we celebrate the birth of Christ into the world. And so Paul reminds the Galatians of this very thing. He said, God, or rather, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so, of course, in honor of the season, um, we celebrate at this time of year. We've pondered in the last weeks the realities set forth in Scripture that have to do with the miraculous birth of Christ in the manger, at Bethlehem, during the census, by the Virgin. We celebrate all these things. I'll give someone time to answer their phone, and then we'll proceed. From Luke's account, we examined the heavenly interventions that it took to safely bring the Christ child to the appointed place at the appointed time and according to the appointed circumstances. And so what happened, friends? We know very famously what happened. The angels sang. Mary sang her great magnificat, if you will, if you will where she called the baby in her womb her Lord. She called the baby in the womb her Savior. All of these things happen. This, is a, this takes a great measure of revelation for a 16-year-old girl who has not known a man who is suddenly pregnant, told by an angel the meaning of it, and for her to recognize that that is the Christ child that would save her. Now, we know that as we go through the Gospels, time goes on. Decades go by, and people in close family tend to forget the impact of the miracle. But friends, really, as Christians, we can't really expect to live miracle by miracle. Miracles come far apart, but we can live by revelation to revelation because we have the written word before us. So the angels sang, and Mary sang, and Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist, worshipped God. That was the... That was the expression of everyone that came into contact with the prophesied Christ child. They worshipped God. The prophets Anna and Simeon, remember them from the early chapters of Luke? They rejoiced with great joy about the news and the presence of the Christ child in the shepherd at the time of his circumcision. The shepherds in the fields made a religious pilgrimage to find the babe in the manger according to their angelic revelation. They obeyed, they came with haste, 
And they became the very first evangelists, friends. And so we read. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this Christ. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. When's the last time you told the gospel story to someone and they marveled at it? And you would come away saying, I can't believe how God worked in that transference of that simple story. They marveled at it. That's when you know the Holy Spirit has put his mark upon the moment. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Can you imagine these guys, these shepherds in the field? They go there, they, they um, are told that the, the, the sign to them was that there'd be a baby in a manger. Why would someone give birth to someone in a manger? It's obviously... A, something God could use as a sign. He told them that was the sign. They found the babe. They recognized who he was because the angels revealed who he was. And then all the way back to the fields, they just rejoiced. We know that the wise men came for this purpose as well. That was some time later, friends. The wise men came months or even years later. They were led by a star. Shepherds weren't led by a star, the wise men were led by the star. And we say, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. little geography lesson this morning. Star was in the west. The wise men were in the east. Okay, they saw his star while they were in the east. If the star was in the east, they would have gone to China to find the Christ child. Right? Star was in the west. Just want to correct all the little hallmark cards that you've treasured so much all your lives. And... So the response of faithful people to the birth was to worship him. That's what you do when you come in contact with Christ. Look what happened to everyone in Scripture when Christ showed up. The very first chapters of Isaiah. When the Lord shows up and Isaiah falls on his knees and recognizes his sin the moment he sees what true glory looks like and he falls to his knees and says, Bless me, Father, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is what happens when you're in the presence of ho true holiness. And the response of the people was the same. As we know very famously, worship was not, though, the universal response to the birth. Some people wanted no part of this. We may remember Herod. Now, this was the first Herod, the grandfather of the rest of them, if you will. There were four, at least four Herods. Uh, depicted in the Bible, and five or six that are mentioned in the Bible. This is Herod the Great, great architect of uh, Jerusalem, brought in, the, built the temple there, rebuilt Solomon's temple to a glory that it had not known formerly, the place where Jesus preached all during Holy Week and, and went to Passover every year of his 33-year life. He would go to that temple, and they would sacrifice the lambs. This was Herod. He was, he was truly Herod the Great, in man's estimation. And so we may remember his cunning inquiries into the birth. The wise men came. Isn't it interesting? The wise men came to Herod from afar, 
we assume it would have been Babylon or Persia, which would be Iraq and Iran today, right? And they came from afar, and they say, we saw his star in the east, and they knew all about the prophecies. Perhaps they read the book of Daniel. Daniel was in the Persian Empire. The writings would have been there, right? They probably read some of the Persian prophets, maybe read the book of Esther, or some of the, uh, maybe the book of Malachi even, which was written in that period. They may have, uh, and was in that part of the world. They may have had all these revelations under their belt. And so that mixed with their astrology, because you don't have to be an astrologist to look for signs in the heaven, because God said in Genesis that this, the heavenly bodies would be used for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And they figured it out. We saw his star. And Herod must have been thinking, I didn't, my, my people didn't tell me about the star. So he had this cunning inquiry into the birth. So what did he do? He sought counsel from the religious establishment of his kingdom. And I've always been very curious as to the fact that the priests and scribes, Herod called the priests and scribes to him to ask him, what are these wise men talking about? Because little known secret of history, many people thought Herod was the Christ. He was king of the Jews, right? And after him, they thought perhaps Herod Antipas, his son, the one who killed John the Baptist and was in the trial of Jesus, they thought perhaps he was the Christ. And then you go all the way up to Acts chapter 12, where Herod is spoken of there. And it said, you may remember this, Peter was put in prison, James was killed by the sword, you remember this, Acts chapter 12, and that Herod preached, and it said, and they said, this is the voice of a God and not a man, they said. And that was the grandson of this Herod. Herod Agrippa I was his name. And then, what does the next verse say? After they say he, they, they considered him a, as a god and not a man, it says, and then he was eaten by worms and died. Very descriptive <laughs> death for Herod, which is also in the antiquities of Josephus. So something happened there, right? Um, so the Herods went on. You go to uh, Acts chapter twenty. Uh, 5 and 26, where Paul preaches to Agrippa. That's Herod Agrippa II. And so this dynasty on down through the New Testament was always there um, opposing the Christ in some, some way or other. And so he calls together his priests and scribes to ask them, what are these men from afar talking about? And so we read, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and when he had gathered the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And friends, they got it right. They knew. And so we read, they said to him, Matthew writes, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd to my people Israel. Wouldn't you think there would have been a modicum of curiosity in the local priests and scribes who were paid to study this stuff and not get it from these magi who came from a thousand miles away? The priests and scribes knew that the fullness of time had come, yet it seems they were not even curious. I'll tell you why they weren't curious, and I'll warn you about this. They were wrapped up in politics. Politics had become their religion. It was more important to make sure that the 
that the earthly king of the Jews remained in place. They weren't interested in the heavenly king of the Jews. Making true the statement of the Apostle John from his gospel, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so we read further Herod's response. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word of him to me that I may come and worship him. In other words, tell me exactly where he is so that I I can kill him and not have to kill all the other babies along with him. You see, this is what his plan was. Thankfully, however, the wise men were wised up. And being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Friends, I want to take this moment to talk about the courage and devotion of the wise men. They defied the king of Palestine in his own kingdom. They chose to obey God over man and presumably risked much in doing so. They snuck out. Another timely warning from heaven came in those days as well where we read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Boy, that's what you want to hear in a dream, huh? They just fleed to Bethlehem, and now they've got to flee. Then they fleed back to Nazareth, and now they've got to flee to Egypt so that Herod couldn't find the son. So flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And if you remember, very famously, Joseph gets met again by an angel, and he tells him, don't worry, Herod's dead, you can go back now. Um, So God pulled all these forces, all these heavenly forces together, not only to bring together all these events in the fullness of time, as Paul wrote, right? but to make certain that no one could hurt that Christ child until his appointed hour had come. And they were there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea 11.1. I want to note here that that was the second angelic visitation from Joseph. Can you imagine him? He was probably childhood sweethearts with Mary. They grew up together, perhaps, in Nazareth, right? And he probably thought, how can all of this drama be happening? All our lives we planned to get married. Now i got to wait for angels to tell me what to do all the time. So the first came when his virgin girlfriend turned up pregnant. Had he followed the law of the letter, it could have gone very badly for Mary and very scandalously for Joseph. But thankfully, the angel came in and said, don't worry about it, I got this covered. It's from the Holy Spirit. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he'll save people, he'll save his people from their sins. Friends, I just heard a... A Christmas message by John MacArthur. You know what it was on? It was on sin. (laughs) Christmas is about sin. Christ came to save people from their sins. Nobody wants to talk about sins. We want to talk about Santa. Want to talk about those who were nice and not those who were naughty. No, save people from their sins. 
But friends, Herod was not a man to be trifled with, and we can see from the very next, next passage. Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. You don't want to get Herod angry, I got a feeling. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children. Now, how many could there have been? I've seen estimates, because there's demographic studies, population studies of Bethlehem at the time. They, it's, I've seen anywhere from 12 to uh, 50 children at that time. It wasn't vastly populated. It would have been unrealistic to think there were tens of, you know, or hundreds of, of, of these babies, but there were plenty, plenty of bloodshed to go around. And remember, they just had a census, they, so they knew everything about you in your house. That's the government want all the information so they can come right in. They probably knew exactly what houses to go to. And it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. How's that for a... Christmas blessing. And so we have this litany of events leading to the birth of Christ. And we have them from all the wonderful gospel sources that were miraculously given to us and to the whole world. We can even see from the passages that it was truly... Friends, this was a world event. This called all the great people from around the world to take notice of it. It involved not only the children of Israel, but Persian astrologers. It involved Egypt and North Africa as a refuge for the Holy Family. God had to pull together the king and kingdom of Palestine and the whole of the Roman Empire, which comprised the three continents of Europe, Africa, and Asia. And people were taking notice. Even though Rome was the great empire of the time, people were beginning to get concerned about what happened in this dusty little village of of uh, Judea, and that was more important than the armies of Caesar fighting in Gaul and Flanders, right? So we have the events before us, we have the fulfillment of prophecies, both good and evil tidings, and yet it's possible that the people of God, is it possible that the people of God could, could forget the events as written? Friends, seriously, as you go through your Christmas season here, in this beloved country of ours, do you get the idea that maybe it's really not about Christ? And even for those who it is, do you get the idea maybe they don't really know much about Christ? That's my sensation. Is it possible that we could go on another day as the church of God, though, if we forget? As the church, we can't forget the the facts of this history, and much worse, we can't deny them. Well, that's exactly what happened, even before the first two decades after the resurrection. And that's why we have today's text. People were forgetting. The churches were forgetting. And Paul was not willing that they should forget without a reminder. Hence, the great epistle to the Galatians. And so today's text is to those churches and what the churches should believe with regard to Christ and the gospel, he's bringing them back up to speed. They were falling back into their old Judaism, into their own meritorious conduct, trying to get God's attention with their, with their sacrifices and their good works, going back to their former, former ways. What the churches should believe with regard to Christ and the gospel, friends, what the 
churches should be celebrating, what the preachers of the churches should be preaching, is not only the events. Not only the events as they were laid out before us by our scrupulous apostolic writers, but they have to preach the doctrine of the birth of Christ. What did it mean? And so we have Paul's letter to the churches of Asia Minor. Galatians was one of the first New Testament books, as I've said. Most agree that Matthew was already written. James was perhaps the second one. You remember James was Jesus' brother. He became the great pillar in the Jerusalem church, so he was one of the earliest writers of the New Testament. And all of them would have been circulated before the end of the fourth decade of that first century. And so Galatians was probably, probably written in circa 49 A.D. So that's pretty quick for people to forget the events. Friends, events are wonderful things, as we've seen. And they're the very things that keep the saints in the constant reality that these things happened literally and historically. These are not fables. These events happened. They came together. They can be corroborated by extra-biblical sources. Other writers wrote about these events. They did happen. But events, friends, circumstances, historical happenings for the Christian must be tied to their ultimate meaning for them to have the intended effect. In order for the events of the virgin birth to inspire faith, the facts of history have to be tied to their intended divine meaning. I'm going to give you an example. The great Presbyterian theologian Gresham Machen from the 1920s at Princeton, he wrote these words in a fabulous little book that you may want to read called Christianity and Liberalism. As far back as 1920, he wrote this. And he's trying to point out the importance of doctrine. Friends, there isn't a historian worth his salt that wouldn't say Jesus Christ lived, that wouldn't say he died on, on the cross. But what does it mean? Gresham Machen said Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. He didn't just die. He wasn't just a, a, a failed minister who they misunderstood because he insulted the wrong people. He died for a reason. He died for our sins. That's the doctrine of the cross, you see. We don't jettison doctrine. We're the keepers of it. He might just as well have said the same of the birth of Christ. We, uh, we just read the angels, the angels' announcement to Joseph of this very thing. We read of the Christ child that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. That's why he was born. He was born to die, but not until the appointed time. In the fullness of time he was born, in the fullness of time he died, it was according to prophecy for the sake of the truth. Truth is just another word for doctrine, friends. Remember the prophetess Anna? She said to Luke, Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. She spoke of him to all who would look for redemption in Israel. All she did is look upon this baby that she waited, I forget how many years, you can remind me from Luke, she was there many, many years in the temple, right? As soon as she saw the Christ child, she evangelized. She pointed people to him. Jesus came according to prophecy, but he also came for the prophesied purpose. 
What was the purpose of his coming? To save his people from their sins. To redeem them, friends. Jesus is the English translation of the Greek name Jesus, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeheshua, which means literally God is deliverance. Jesus' name means deliverance. That's why she said they'll call his name Jesus because he will save them from their sins. Or they called his name Jesus because he is the deliverer. So we'll call him the deliverer. The Hebrew doesn't hear Jesus, he hears deliverer. And because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Friends, this is one of the most important doctrines of the birth of Christ, not only the birth of Christ, but the new birth of every believer as you come to belief in Christ. So the purpose of the birth of Christ is entirely concerned with salvation. To save his people. That's what salvation means. It means to save, right? That's the, that's the reason he came. Salvation comes through Christ. It's his name. It's his purpose. He's the deliverer. He's come to rescue his people. Not from their earthly enemies, friends. Not from their every perceived trouble. Although he's so merciful, he does protect us from our enemies and bring us out of perceived trouble. But that's not the purpose of his coming. He came to rescue us from our sins. Christmas is about repentance. In other words, friends, he came to save us from ourselves. And the process of rescue is a simple concept. It's called adoption. From the previous verse, we read that we might receive the adoption as sons. That we might receive the adoption. What do you think all this adoption talk is about? Well, I think you know that adoption is the process whereby a father takes a child that's not his own and gives him the same things that he gives to his natural children. Right? He offers the adopted child his, the same love. He offers them the same care. He gives them the same benefits of his household. And friends, the adopted child gets the same inheritance as the natural child. And so to the Romans again, Paul stresses the point of adoption. We read this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, the older brother, the begotten son, the natural son, if you will, of God. It's actually supernatural. But God's begotten son, we're all the adopted sons and daughters. And by the way, in the scripture, sons means sons and daughters. I don't have to get all woke on you this morning to get that across, do I? If we're heirs with God, we're joint heirs with Christ. God is going to bless the church, the adopted children of God, with the same blessings that Christ inherits. We are inheritors with Christ. And so the impact of the verse is made clear. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. What else do we inherit? The same spirit as Christ. The spirit that's in Christ is put into us. Into our hearts, it says. What a thing to inherit. The Holy Spirit, why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Abba, Father. 
That's a very sort of intimate way of calling on God. It's sort of the, the nickname of the adopted children of, of God for their father, Abba. It's the intimate term. The Spirit of God is a gift to those who found faith in Christ. And so the Spirit offers the believer. What's the believer? The believer's the adopted son. He offers them the same familiarity with the father that's enjoyed by the begotten son. The purpose of the coming of Christ at the fullness of time is to gather together all the sons and daughters of God into one faith, into one spirit. Why do you think he calls us to congregate? How many psalms do you read where David or one of the other psalmists comes out and says, I will preach this, I will proclaim this in the great assembly. God's people come together. This is practice. Friends, when we get to heaven... And we do get there, right? It's a hard road, <laughs> but we do get there. It's promised, just as the babe was promised in the manger. If you went there, you'd found him, right? We're promised if we go all the way, we're going to find him there. When we get there, what do you think we're going to do? I've heard all sorts of various things. And I don't really know. I, apparently, we won't be married anymore. Dodge that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> apparently, we won't be married anymore. We won't have any love but our first love. I don't know if we'll have our vocations anymore. I don't know if we'll go to school. I don't know if we'll make lunches or herd sheep. I mean, I don't know what we'll do, but I know one thing that we will do. We'll worship God day and night. There won't be any night, but we'll worship Him. What used to be night will be day. And One thing that doesn't expire is worship. The people of God worship God. That's the only immediate eternal, proper response to God. Fall on your knees and worship Him. Because you are sons, and the Spirit of God is in you, just as it was in Christ. And so this wonderful Christian uh, Christmas rather revelation of the birth of Christ at the appointed time in history, according to all the prophecies of Scripture, is to redeem His people, and to redeem them, friends, is to buy them back from their present owner. You know, there's a couple of words in the New Testament we, that we should have translated and we didn't. Redeem's one of them. We should have just said buy back because then it wouldn't be this high and holy word and everyone would understand what it really means. Same with baptize. If we said, if we said baptize was immerse, then we wouldn't wonder whether we should have other forms of baptism. If we just, if, if baptize, if we translated the word baptizo from the Greek into immerse, then we would have John the Immerser. And we wouldn't have any wonder of what was going on there in the Jordan River those days. So we have this wonderful word, redeem. Exagorazo. The lexicon says to buy. And it denotes to buy out or of purchasing of a slave with a view to his freedom. I'm quoting from the lexicon now. It's used metaphorically in Galatians, the verse we have before us, of the deliverance of Christ of Christian Jews from the law and its curse. It's to buy back, friends. You know what redemption is. You've gone to the redemption center and you take your old bottles, your old vessels, <laughs> Right? that contained all that wonderful stuff that you consumed, and now it's empty, and you bring it back to its original owner, 
and he gives you money for it. He buys it back. That's what redeem is. We go to the redemption center, you know, and then they pack us in crates and ship us off to the landfill. But actually, when you're a Christian, you don't go to the landfill. You get your life back. So, friends, what is Christ's death? Christ's death is a currency. Think about it. It's the only currency that may be exchanged for a human soul. What does it cost to buy a human soul? The death of Christ. Remember when they came to the temple, they had to have temple money. They couldn't have pagan money. They had to exchange it. Remember, they were money changers, right? Well, when you come to buy a soul, you can't buy it with human money. You have to buy it with the death of Christ. That's the only currency that buys it. That's what Redemption is an economic term. We ought to get used to it. And so the true purpose of the birth of Christ is the death of Christ. And the death is the payment. The death is the redemption. And so the real owner buys back his property by paying the price. Right? And if I know these Semitic peoples, they probably dicker and argue about the price. And so the apostle illustrates this precise point of doctrine to the Corinthians where he writes this. Friends, it doesn't get any plainer. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You thought you owned yourself. And then he goes on. He says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. He bought you back. Now, why does all this apply within the context of today's passage? Well, I'll tell you, it's this. If we'll not keep these things in our hearts and we become forgetful hearers, we miss the ultimate point of the birth of Christ. How many people have lectured you this year in some trite little greeting card way about the meaning of the season and all these kinds of things? As soon as I hear that, my, I, I'm sorry, I know I can be a little cynical, but I just turn off. It's well to speak about goodwill, friends. It's wonderful to be charitable and generous with our things for a season. You know, I had someone in the church one time said, Pastor Dan, do you, um, do you give out turkeys to people at Thanksgiving? And I said, well, we're kind of a little church, and we live in Lakeville, and there isn't a lot of people that need a turkey on Thanksgiving. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I could go to a poorer community and start up a thing, and that's fine. But if you're concerned about that, I always say to the person that makes the wonderful suggestion, why don't you do it? Start a ministry. I'll back it. And so she came and said, do you, do you, uh, do you give out turkeys on Thanksgiving? And I said, well, no, but do you, what do you think those people on Thanksgiving ate on Wednesday and Friday? I mean, people have to eat every day. Getting a turkey on Thanksgiving is not the intended blessing I think that it's supposed to be. The Christian church has a mandate to meet the needs of their people in all days. And so just to be generous for a season or just for a day, we may get all nostalgic about the secular trappings and even some of the religious trappings of the season. But I think that it's a doctrinally safe statement to say that Jesus is a whole lot less enamored with Christmas than we are. He's not pining away, hoping for a white Christmas. It's pretty hot over there. Don't get a lot of snow. He doesn't care if there's an angel or a star on top of your tree. He doesn't care if there's, is, is a tree. In fact, Jeremiah was anti-tree. You ever read Jeremiah? 
Jeremiah was anti-tree. This is what he wrote. Do not learn the way of the Gentile. Do not be dismayed at the sign of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the custom of the peoples are futile, for one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. That's why we have an artificial tree. (laughs) You know, I I heard an environmentalist lately yelling at these Christmas tree vendors because they were cutting down all the trees. Of course, they grow the trees to sell them every year. And the guy said, so it's better if we all buy aluminum trees and put them in a landfill for a billion years. (laughs) The economists, I mean, the uh, environmentalists got to get their whole act together. When you plug in the electric car, that's great, but the power comes from somewhere. But I digress, and I know it. But Jeremiah was definitely anti-tree. Now, there is great, wonderful verses in, um, in Isaiah who is pro-tree. But if I'm to be perfectly candid with you this morning, I must tell you that the way the conservative media deals with Christmas is embarrassing to me. It's just so sappy. It's all this overboard sentiment about our family tradition. Some Fox News host wrote a book on the subject. There's always someone making a million dollars on, uh, on writing a book. Once you become famous, you write a book and you get rich. I won't be reading the book. Um, if you do, you can tell me about it. But they're reporting the sad Christmas news of the supply chain shortage and the empty shelves. And by the way, I want to say, I've heard all this. I've heard the shelves are empty. I have not seen empty shelves. You know, I heard there's no cream cheese. Have you heard there's no cream cheese? There's plenty of cream cheese. Karen came home with two things of cream cheese. I said, what are the, the Fox News guy said, there's no cream cheese. Where'd you get it? Did you steal it off the truck? There's cream cheese everywhere. I don't understand why we make up these things. Supply chain shortage. I understand there's a supply chain shortage, believe me. But are we supposed to be all hung up on how many Christmas gifts are on the shelves? I thought, I thought even the Grinch knew that that wasn't important. All this, though, friends, all this sappy sentimentality is to use the birth of Christ as a political cudgel against the present administration's economic policy. He ruined Christmas. There's no presents for the kids. Friends, my kids used to be in trouble if they gave me a Christmas list. Don't you ever give me a list of what I must get you. I thought that was the most abhorrent tradition that there ever was. Okay, so I just ruined Christmas for all these kids. But... Let me ask you this. Do you suppose the shelves were full in the stores of Bethlehem that night? Did all the little Hebrew children get what was on their list that year? Do you think the Holy Family absconding to Egypt for their lives was jolly and abundant? Friends, even the Grinch knew the supply chain was not the issue. He said it came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Friends, there's no point in getting all teary-eyed about the story of the birth at Christmas time if all the rest of the year we forget the true purpose in the birth of Christ. Give the turkey on Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful thing, and they'll have, have it to pick away at it the next few days until they get sick of it too, like you're all sick of turkey. I had friends over yesterday for Christmas. 
Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out Donnie right now. He said, you're not having turkey, are you? <laughs> Carrot, get out and get some filet mignon for Donnie. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Donnie. Friends, that's the exact purpose of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Don't forget the real meaning of the birth. I'm not talking about Christmas. I'm talking about the birth of Christ. This letter is a stern rebuke to those who choose symbol over substance. His opening words to them is this. Paul wasn't messing around, friends. He wrote, I marvel that you're turning away so soon. It's like you just got saved. Your church just got established, and you're already turning away back to all these fables that will lead you back. You know, when you keep choosing the traditions of pagan cultures, it softens your belief in the doctrine of your culture. And we have to be careful about that. So you need an iconoclast like me to get up and ruin the holiday for you every year. But see, I'm safe this year because it was yesterday. It's over. (laughs) I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Friends, a gospel without the virgin birth isn't the gospel. But there are some who trouble you and they want to pervert the gospel of Christ. I have no doubt about that. But if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. He doubles down on the curse. Make no mistake, friends, forgetfulness is sin. It can be the ultimate sin. Forgetfulness is blasphemy. Forgetfulness is deception. What do you think we come every week for? We're forgetful people. Paul goes on with the diatribe. He writes this in chapter 3. O foolish Galatians. Friends, he's talking to his Christian brethren. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He asks rhetorically, right? Believe me, friends, I'm not here this morning to rescue the so-called true meaning of Christmas. I'm not trying to rescue it from secular humanistic trappings that come with it. I've always held that Christmas is a secular holiday. Every secularist humanist in the country celebrates it. Case closed. Even Charles Dickens secularized it. You've seen A Christmas Carol. There's no Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of other spirits, right? There's no Holy Spirit. Rather, we're the various spirits of Christmas have to come and speak to us in the secular mind, right? I couldn't care less if Clarence gets his wings or if Zuzu's flower gets crushed. I'm not trying to rescue Christmas. I am trying to rescue the gospel of Christ, though. I'll let the Christmasites do the rescuing. I'm not concerned at all with keeping Christ in Christmas. I'm concerned with keeping Christ in Christianity. And let me make this statement for you this morning. Christianity is not dependent on Christmas, and I won't be told that. We went for centuries. Friends, Christmas was outlawed in Massachusetts until the 1850s, when Christianity really flourished in New England. No, I like Christmas, like all of you. I like that. We have our party. I sing some songs. We have the band. It's a wonderful time. 
But Christianity is not dependent on Christmas or Easter or any other man-made tradition, friends. Christianity depends upon Christ. And if Christ is centered in our hearts the way he's centered in true biblical Christianity, then all is right with the world. And I can assure you that just as he came into the world in the fullness of time, that is God's time, so will he come again in the fullness of time. And it'll not be a Christmas miracle. It will be a miracle of Christ. Even if it happens on Christmas, it'll be a miracle of Christ. (laughs) Verses 10 and 11. And then Paul just goes further. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I've labored for you in vain. What do you suppose he means by that? Is he taking away the holidays? I read Calvin's commentaries on this. He's not trying to take away civil holidays. It's not the point. It's considering one day as holy and one day as not. Friends, we worship corporately one day in seven, but we we worship individually and in solitary seven days in seven. Friends, the whole of this epistle is to rescue the church from a backward slide into their former ways, in this case, former Judaism. And so he uses this example of reverence of certain days as evidence of the slide. And Paul's surprisingly harsh in this statement and in this whole epistle, really. It's because he equates a return to former rituals as a strategy for false teachers to seduce believers back to former ways. I'm going to say that again. Paul equates a return to former rituals, the things you gave away when you came into Christ, He equates a return to the ritual as a strategy that false teachers use to seduce us back to the former ways. Remember how much fun we used to have? Former beliefs. Indeed, Galatians, who has bewitched you, he says. Sentimentality is a powerful tool. Friends, I grew up, we had the most idyllic Christmases. My parents were into it. Stockings were hung by the chimney with care. (laughs) And all of those things. I won't do that to you, but... Sentimentality is powerful. Uh, You know, before the Christmas carols were Christmas carols that warmed our hearts at a certain season of year, they were hymns sung in the church all times of the year. I've had many a humanist pundit on TV or elsewhere lecture me on the true meaning of things. If the birth of Christ has meaning, if this is the season where such a thing is remembered, there is one thing, but if the birth of, birth of Christ retains its true gospel meaning, then why must society lavish so much tinsel upon a thing that should stand quite well on its own? Got to keep propping it up. I remember years ago, there was a Fox News host. He wrote a, and by the way, I'm not anti-Fox, I just I, you know, it's the conservative channel, or one of them, and I know that people get, um, caught up in it, but he wrote The War on Christmas. It was a big thing. There's a war on Christmas out there. And all the secular media, is, is, you know, all the liberal media say, no, there's no war on Christmas. We're, we're for it as much as you. I think the media is still fighting that war, but let me tell you, it's not a war. All right? There's a battle on Christmas because it's perceived to be a stronghold in the war against Christianity. The war is against Christianity. And people attack Christmas... As a, as a battle, as a strategic stronghold that they can win, and they think that will wipe out Christianity or hurt us. It won't. 
So there's something to the argument about it being a, a battle that they see as a strategy against Christianity. But let me tell you, it's a minor battle. And the reason that Christmas haters will lose the battle is because Christmasists will win the battle the same way they won it in ancient Rome when Saturnalia became Christmas. People that want these traditions will have them. They'll always win. It was non-Christians, friends, and nominal Christians who invented Christmas, and it'll be those same ones who preserve it. It's a tradition too ingrained in the popular culture. Nobody will get rid of it. That's my prophecy for you today. It's a commercial necessity for retailers and specialty vendors. I have friends who sell Christmas trees. They make a good amount of money at that time of year. And COVID really hurt them because people didn't come out in those numbers. And they couldn't get the deliveries and all of the things. Friends, it's a, it's a big commercial bonanza. I don't think it's going anywhere. And in point of fact, it's, it's too much fun for our fun-loving society to reject it wholesale. All the customs came from pagan culture and were amalgamated or baptized with the veneer of Christ. And so the secular merged with the sacred and became Christmas. But it's the doctrine, friends, of the birth that's essential to faith and needs no secular embellishment. It's the truth of the event that gives the event its power. And so long as the church is the church, and so long as we stand on the truth of Scripture, so long as we gather together to worship the one true God and to proclaim Him unabashedly to anyone in hearing distance, friends, the victory is won. We don't win the battle. We just fight it. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Remember the angels saying at the birth of Christ, what embellishment can we do to top that? And preached that salvation is in Christ alone. The doctrine of the birth of Christ. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you this morning for the word of God, and I pray that it will seep down into our souls, and that we might grow thereby by the pure milk of the word, O Lord. Let us know truthfully again the basic doctrines of our faith that begin with the birth of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.